This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Since we've been on this program for uh, the better part of three and a half years, I have done a lot of segments on the John F. Kennedy assassination, especially last year. Last year marked the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas. And there's been, let's face it, widespread public skepticism surrounding the official narrative of the case. And we've had on... People who are conspiracy theorists who have put forward every possible conspiracy theory you can imagine to people that believe the Oswald was a lone gunman theory. And there was at least one instance, I think there were even multiple, but I think there was at least one instance where we have these folks debate one another. I, for the last 10 years or so, have uh, maybe 11 years, have come down more on the conspiracy side of things than the lone gunman side of things. But I kind of get turned around when I hear the conspiracy debunkers. The explanations that they offer do tend to be pretty convincing. They certainly seem to answer all of my possible questions or concerns. And then I kind of get turned around again when I talk to somebody that's more of the conspiracy end of things. So... Here's what I do believe. There are still 4,700 documents related to the case that are partially or heavily redacted. And I don't believe that there's any secret document somewhere that says, oh, the killer was actually Joe. No. Uh, But I do find it troubling just as a government transparency advocate and as somebody that's curious about the case that these documents are still locked up, basically. You see, the assassination of President Kennedy has remained an enduring mystery, not only for me in this show, but in the public imagination. There was a live operator interview poll of 2,000 voters, and they found that only 38%, this was done by the Mary Farrell Foundation, which... Just so everybody's clear, they are an organization dedicated to maintaining records related to the assassination. So it's not an unbiased group. But they found that only 38% of Americans believed Oswald acted alone. Gallup polling since 1963 has consistently found this skepticism to be widespread. And it's not a right-wing thing or a left-wing thing. You have right-wing people like Roger Stone, who, who, by the way, is actually not as right-wing as you might think, but he's considered a right-winger who are all about the assassination. You have left-wing people like Tom Hartman and Rob Reiner that believe there was a conspiracy. So this ongoing debate about the release of the John F. Kennedy documents really has made its way into the presidential election this year, where you have independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., John F. Kennedy's nephew, who's known for... Uh, pushing a lot of things that people say are conspiracy theories that are outside of the mainstream 
And he's been outspoken about his disbelief in the official narrative surrounding his uncle's death. We've talked to him about this repeatedly. And uh, I, he and I were just texting right before the, um, the holiday. He's going to come back on this program. And in July of this year, former President Trump posted an interview on Truth Social of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. criticizing President Biden's decision to block the complete release of remaining documents. So this is what President Trump wrote. When I return to the White House, I will declassify and unseal all JFK assassination-related documents. It's been nearly 60 years. Time for the American people to know the truth. So you have two major presidential candidates, Trump and Kennedy, who say they're going to let everything out there. Biden says, nope, we've released everything that there is to be released. Jefferson Morley a writer who has chronicled the events surrounding Kennedy's assassination, and he's been a guest on this show as well. He's the vice president of the Mary Farrell Foundation. He said that the group, which pushes for more disclosures about the events surrounding JFK's assassination, didn't expect the Kennedy assassination to be an issue in the 2024 election. But it is. And it doesn't surprise them. So Morley summed up in talking with uh, NBC News why he thinks the release of the remaining documents is so important. Quote, if you want to get full disclosure on 9-11, unidentified aerial phenomenon, you've got to start with JFK. Okay, if the CIA gets their way on the murder of a president, you know then they're going to get their way on other issues. I think there's, uh, I think there's a point there. We spoke with uh, Larry Schnapp, who's the lawyer for the Mary Farrell Foundation, about uh, why he's doing this and why he thinks disclosure and letting these, you know, letting these records out and uncovering them is so important. Oswald um, allegedly went to Mexico um, to get a visa to go into Cuba. Um, in the process of doing that, he went to the Russian embassy, embassy and reportedly spoke to a person that was uh, in the KGB that was also the head of the unit that does um, assassinations. And uh, so there was one theory that, you know, that the Russians were behind it. um, And this was another way of showing that he was, uh, you know, uh, a pro-Castro supporter. So he basically believes there's documents related to that meeting in Mexico that have not been released. He said a lot more there, but that's all that we have available from uh, my discussion with him. So I think that's interesting. I'm curious what you think. I don't care whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, or whatever, something else, Libertarian, Vegetarian. Don't you think it's time just to release all of these documents related to the Kennedy assassination in an unredacted manner. I mean, who are we still protecting 61 years later? It's time to let them all out. Let the documents out. Let the people judge for themselves. Again, there's no document locked in a drawer somewhere that says, um, you know, Woody Harrelson's father was on the grassy knoll. There's not. But if there are documents that they've worked so hard to hide from us for six decades, What's the sense in keeping them hidden? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I mentioned UAP. Uh, Axios reported yesterday 
that House members, members of the House of Representatives, are going to receive a classified UFO briefing. So congressional interest in this UFO issue has grown significantly with a small but vocal group of lawmakers pushing for greater transparency from the government. I, uh, I don't know where this is going to go. People in the UAP community say it's hard to generate much enthusiasm for the House of Representatives Oversight Committee being told much from the intelligence community inspector general. The inspector general may confirm some of the things that David Grush uh, said to Congress, but will that be disclosed? Probably not, right? If there's a reason it hasn't been disclosed to the public so far, it's difficult to see the members of the Congress getting briefed and then disclosing this to the public. You know, in my research on this, though, about what's out there, what information the government may have, I came across a very interesting interview that was done by Daniel Sheehan. Daniel Sheehan's a fascinating guy. I'd love to get him on this show. He's a uh, constitutional lawyer, a public interest lawyer, political activist, and an educator. Harvard College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Divinity School. He is a very accomplished guy. He's participated in the Pentagon Papers case. He's participated in, uh, he's the chief counsel of the Romero Institute. He is very well respected in the constitutional law community. Here is a clip in which he states, I'm going to play it for you, that he's spoken to someone who was present while an extraterrestrial was being interviewed. And the interview was recorded on video. So Sheehan has said this before, and recently, in other interviews, and it's one of the reasons I'm so eager to get him on this show, in relation to the uh, UFO catastrophic disclosure theme. But there's, there. well, let me, let me play for you this. This is a constitutional attorney, Daniel Sheehan. There's going to be a video of an actual interview of an actual extraterrestrial being. You know this. Yes. You know, so, I mean, I know that that exists. Uh, and uh, and that's part of the crown jewels that they're not going to want to reveal. But is uh, that that's on the table to come out? Well, uh, what I'm saying is that I talked to the person who was there uh, and that they've got this on film. Uh, and so that if you're really going to get down, when you say we get to the nut of the whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the kind of thing that once it's shown to the American public, there's, you know, Katie bar the door, you know, there's nothing that can, can be denied anymore, you know, and up until now, even though you have David Bruce, who's, you know, the person from the national reconnaissance office assigned to the, the UFO task force inside the office of Naval intelligence comes forward under oath and testifies to a house committee all on video you know, and, and it only sinks into with about two to three or four percent of the people in the country because they're off doing something else. So the question is, how specific does it have to get? How graphic does the information have to be? You know, you always hear about, oh, why don't they land on the White House lawn? You know, or, you know, or why don't they land in Central Park? You know, like Keanu Reeves did. You know, why don't they do that? You know, but the, the bottom line is that what we're trying to do is is provide a deeper and deeper uh, revelation of the information so that more and more people can can have the aha moment. Uh, they'll say, okay, good, now, now I know it's true. That's uh, Daniel Sheehan on a podcast called Night Shift. And again, this is not uh, just a wackadoo 
late night radio caller. This is a significant figure in American history who's been at the forefront of a lot of the important legal battles over the last several decades. He helped defend Daniel Ellsberg during the Pentagon Papers case. He fought for indigenous rights in the Wounded Knee trials. He's been an advocate for transparency and accountability for many years. Um, Very leading advocate on the rights of whistleblowers. So if the government has that kind of information and they're going to brief members of Congress on it, that could be pretty exciting. There is a precedent with this whole alien interview concept. We've seen individuals like Colonel Philip Corso discuss one or more live occupants that include interviews. Recently, the former candidate for Illinois governor, John Stewart, uh, he had an alien interview investigation that's uncovered new details about a video from the 1990s. And you have uh, Dan Sherman and Project Preserve Destiny, which involved interfacing with a gray via telepathy. So are there video recordings of that as well? I don't know. But I do think this, I do think this is going to be a very big year for UFO disclosure. I think it's going to make last year look like tiddlywinks, to be honest. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on um, the JFK documents still being withheld, if you want to comment on Congress being briefed, members of Congress being briefed by the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community, or uh, anything else we've covered thus far. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to uh, Paul in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. Happy New Year Thank to everybody. You, you I too. Know it's a little late. Have you been doing any decent gambling? Uh, I did some indecent gambling on uh, on Friday night. I uh, I made the mistake of uh, of playing after I'd had a few, which uh, never works out well. I I won at the craps table, and rather than take the hundred or two hundred bucks that I won and putting it in my pocket, instead I stopped by that roulette table, which is always a mistake, and it's something I would never do sober. And I said, "Oh my, red has come out a lot, hasn't it?" Maybe it's time for black. Uh, sure enough, that was uh, that was an error. But well, luckily, I didn't bring much money with me to gamble with. So uh, I uh, I lost a little bit on Friday night, but that was about it. That's good. Uh, well, uh, I lost once. I went up and bet a thousand dollars on black three times and lost every time. Oh, I'll never do that again. Goodness! And now I'm trying to swear off the lottery tickets. They've killed me. The state of Connecticut is terrible. I haven't won in three years, and I really played every extra hundred dollars I had. Oh, that's rough. Uh, What's yeah, on your mind? Rough. Well, I was going to say, well, the one was the kids in voting, you know, I think if they're 16, if they could get their driver's license, maybe they should be able to vote. But two, like the 18 going in the military, I think they sh- the, there's a problem with the recruiters just going in and meeting kids. And then, you know, the next thing they're going to school, everything's fine. And then they meet these recruiters and then they bring them the next day. They're going to take a test and joining, you know, one kid said he got came back from Afghanistan, said he got hit by a car bomb there his first day there. So that was a young person that joined the Marines. Yeah, I mean, that's terrible. That was something I felt bad about. Yeah, how could you not? So, you know, for his mother in Shelton, Connecticut. Yeah, nobody should go through that. I mean, terrible. it's one of the reasons I think you see a lot of young people not wanting to 
um, join the military. You think, hey, look, why should I go and fight, um, in, not for my own country, but in an Afghan civil war or an Iraqi civil war or a Syrian civil war or a Yemeni civil war? I think it's a, it's a very legitimate issue. You know, um, one of the things <clears throat> that we hear about a lot is when it's Memorial Day or Veterans Day, you always hear people say, oh, all these veterans died for our freedom. Well, if an American serviceman, and I'm not saying we shouldn't mourn an American serviceman, we absolutely should, but if an American serviceman died in in Iraq, did they really die for our freedom? Or did they die because politicians in this country chose to invade Iraq? Right? So I think it, it becomes a very difficult recruiting tool post-Vietnam when you look at it this way. You know, Vietnam, we were told if North Vietnam wins, that's it, domino effect, communism takes over. Well, not only did North Vietnam win, not only is all of Vietnam communist, we trade with Vietnam. We buy all sorts of stuff with Vietnam. Americans go on vacation to Vietnam. So that was bogus. It was bogus. 800-848-9222. I think the bar, look, I don't want to go on this tangent, but the bar for American military intervention needs to be incredibly high before American servicemen and women are placed at risk in harm's way. It shouldn't be because um, a, a government that we're friendly with is at loggerheads with another unfriendly government. I, I think... The security of America has to directly be threatened. That's my barometer. That's my view. That's what what I'm looking for in a commander-in-chief. Uh, and it's one of the things, honestly, that I think Donald Trump understands. I think he's made some mistakes, but I haven't seen a president that hasn't. Billy's in Rockland. What's on your mind, Billy? Hey, great show, Frank. Uh, Thank you. I think I think if you release the uh, Kennedy documents, the people that go through them are going to be able to put one plus two plus three. They're going to go through all of them. And they're going to find a common theme or a common threads. You know, the people on the Warren Commission that maybe like said, oh, don't go here, don't go there, or go up this way. Then they're going to be able to point fingers. So that's why I think maybe these documents aren't being released. Um, but I, I think you might be right. And I think it's one of the reasons so many people want them released. But I think if you're at this point and you still you don't believe there was a conspiracy or something, I think you really are never going to believe that there's a conspiracy. But you know, you who knows? Uh, but if that's the case, Billy, we should have a right to know. In my view, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Roberts in Suffolk. Hi, Robert. Hi, Frank. Uh, I'm with Neil about the age of majority, as it's called when you are an adult, it's generally accepted in society here that that age for almost every intent and purpose is 18. Well, but it used to be generally accepted that it was 21 when they changed it 50 years ago to 18. Yes, and I believe that was primarily for military recruiting purposes it was done. Right. Okay. And so what about also doing it for taxpayers' purposes? Okay. Now, we've seen the opposite happen because it's turned out that a lot of people who are 18 are not mature, intelligent, or um, wise enough 
Wisdom comes with maturity and age, life experience. And especially with these kids being taught revisionist history. Right, but again, Robert, but so now, are you going to take the right of, to vote, to Robert? Know? Robert, are, are you going to take what the right, Robert, Robert, um, are you going to take yeah. the right to vote away from an 18-year-old at this point? No. So, but so if your concern is, um, you know, revisionist history and the education system, then let's fix the education system. But if you're saying people shouldn't be able to vote because they're being brainwashed in school, then the 18 year old, the 19 year old, the 20 year old, the 21 year old that's voting right now, they're victims of the brainwashing. So how do you allow the 18 and the 19 year old to vote, but not the 16 year old? All right. Let me give you a real life example. <laughs> Very recent, in fact. Nikki Haley. She is a early gen Xer, right? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Uh, elections have consequences. Now she's a product of the education system in the eighties, being the gen Xer. And that's why she doesn't know slavery caused the Civil War. Yes, because she was not taught that. You know, Robert, I, 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 you know, look, I'm no fan of Nikki Haley. I think she'd be a terrible president. But I think she does know that. I mean, there's no way that Nikki Haley, who's an intelligent woman, she is. Just because I wouldn't vote for her um, doesn't mean she's not intelligent. She is an intelligent woman. There's no way that she served as ambassador to the U.N., there's no way that she served as governor of South Carolina for multiple terms, including during the Confederate flag controversy, and doesn't know that at least the primary cause of the Civil War was about slavery. I think she was pandering. I think she was pandering to voters that she thinks don't want to hear that. I think that's what that was. I think um, I don't think she's that uh, uninformed. I don't. I mean, uh, you could think she's in the pocket of her donors. You could think she's a... Uh, a puppet of the military-industrial complex, there's no way she doesn't know that slavery was a the or a primary cause of the Civil War. There's no way. No way. I think she was pandering. I think you want to take away points from being dishonest, let's do it. But I, I don't think there's any way that she didn't know that because of the education system. And let's say you're right. Let's say you're right that she doesn't know it because of how she was educated. Are we going to take... Her right to vote away? No. No. So this whole idea that you need to know certain things in order to vote, it doesn't, we don't do that in this country currently. Some people might make the case that we should, but we don't. Matthew is in Maryland. What's on your mind, Matthew? Uh, yes, sir, Frank. Um, I've spent a, a lot of time studying the Kennedy assassination, and I want to stay calm because I'm passionate about it. Uh, have you ever seen Mark Lane's documentaries that he did on Rush to Judgment and uh, the interviewing of the Dealey Plaza witnesses, like I, in 1965? I, I did read that book, but I didn't see the documentary, no. Well, the documentary is very impressive because he interviews the railroad workers on the overpass. And, you know, he, he caught them while this was all fresh in their memory. And it's so... I don't think they have that available anymore. I think they've tried to get rid of that documentary. And uh, he did a series of documentaries on that, which are, if you read, if you watch them, plus read his books, uh, 
it's he built such a powerful case that the CIA it was the you know the prominent force behind the execution. Uh, but I've talked to people. One of the most impressive things that happened. Uh, I talked to some police officers that were at a nightclub I was singing at. And, uh, you know, they were with their wives. And I said, I've been reading about JFK. I've been reading uh, uh, Garrison's book on the trail of the assassins. Anyway, they were cops in D.C. One of them stood by Jacqueline Kennedy at the funeral. And he said, oh, don't you're going to get me crying here, uh, Matthew. He said, because, you know, we used to go to get, get, get together at a bar with CIA, Secret Service. And he said the Secret Service man he was at the bar with at the time, you know, all this was happening, said, uh, hey, Mac, it's not like what they're telling you up there. He was shot from the front. The Secret Service man that was in the motorcade. So I've had grassroots, uh, you know, talking to people. I talked to a sheriff in Dallas and, you know, just said, Matthew, were uh, you there? Do you remember? And he said, we all believed it Ma- was a, a conspiracy. So, Matthew, I have so, to anyway, run. Here's but the, uh, Here's the other thing. Did you see... Mark Crenshaw, he was the doctor. He did a 60 Minutes interview in 90. Uh, Matthew, I'm losing you, uh, but I have a guest anyway. I um, I am familiar with that 60 Minutes interview. Um, we're run low on time here. Another mystery, though, is what became of the USS Cyclops. 1918, it just disappeared. We're going to get into this with somebody that has studied this for years. It's a mystery of mysteries. Marvin Barish joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. 33 minutes after the hour, ships occasionally do interesting things. Ships collide with icebergs and sink. Ships get into battles and are destroyed. What they don't generally do is disappear. How could the biggest ship in the U.S. Navy vanish without a trace? That's the question that was on many many people's minds in March of 1918. When an enormous vessel, the USS Cyclops disappeared on a voyage between the West Indies to Baltimore. A century later, more than a century later, it's still no closer to being answered. This was a ship that was nearly 550 feet long, 11,000 tons. She had been sailing successfully since 1910 between the Baltic Sea and the Caribbean and Mexico and assisting with moving coal around the world and helping refugees. But in 1917, when America entered World War I, Cyclops became a key naval asset transporting troops and coal to fuel other ships all over the world. 
a crew of 306 people vanished. What became of them? One of those people that that vanished was the great uncle of our next guest. And uh, he, our guest, has been the author of multiple books on the USS Cyclops, multiple books in general, including USS Cyclops Volume 1 and Volume 2. I'm very happy to uh, welcome to the program for the first time Marvin Barish. Marvin, thanks for joining me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, sir. Thanks for having me. So, Marvin, uh, tell us who your great-uncle was. My great-uncle was a young man that uh, worked in his uh, family's tailor shop in Baltimore. Uh, it was a large family, but a uh, few of them still remained uh, to, to work in the shop. Some others had uh, gotten married and moved on. Uh, my great-uncle Lawrence was still single. At the time he enlisted in the U.S. Navy, he was 22. He was one of the first 800 from Maryland to enlist in the Navy following the a uh, call from uh, President Wilson and uh, was so uh, uh, commemorated in a massive plaque that's uh, in the uh, Maryland State House. Uh, it honors the uh, first 800 from Maryland to enlist. If I may correct you on one item, it was actually 309 individuals that perished. Ah, thank you. Okay, forgive me. 309. Got it. Not 306. No, that's all right. So it was nearly 106 years ago. And uh, so. The, uh, so as far as my uncle, uh, he uh, he enlisted. He uh, signed up in Baltimore. He uh, began as an apprentice seaman, uh, earned uh, all of uh, $17.60 when he first enlisted. He was assigned to the Cyclops, uh, started off as a fireman third class, eventually got promoted to fireman second class. He was one of the individuals that worked deep in the bowels of the ship shoveling coal, working with the boilers. Uh, It was just uh, not a uh, pleasant uh, duty, I'm I'm certain. But uh, he was all of five feet, four and a half inches tall, 135 pounds. So he was a little guy compared to, uh, uh, I guess, many people nowadays. But um, he, he he still pulled his load, kept his nose clean, and uh, performed well in every uh, everything I found. And to this day, my understanding, and correct me if I'm incorrect on this one, is that there's been no wreckage found of the Cyclops. Is that accurate? That is accurate, yes, sir. Okay, so what were the prevailing theories surrounding the disappearance of the Cyclops, and have any gained more credibility over time? I don't think that any really good theories have, have held water, if you will, for all these years. Uh, the, the biggest difference between the the years that the Cyclops successfully traveled, uh, at least on the, the one hemisphere, uh, carrying coal and uh, liquid fuel oil, was that's what the ship was designed to carry, uh, coal and uh, liquid fuel. The difference on the final cruise back from Brazil and then the uh, the brief layover in Barbados and the, the final leg during which she disappeared was her cargo was manganese ore, 
which is a, a different game altogether. It's a lot denser material, needs to be handled differently, loaded differently. It's not a dangerous material necessarily. It's just uh, a lot different, uh, has different requirements for handling and, and, and uh, stowage on, on a ship. And as far as you can tell, and I know you've looked into this thoroughly, how did the circumstances surrounding the disappearance of the USS Cyclops differ from other naval disappearances of that era? Well, we were still at war. First World War was on. Uh, there were rumors that perhaps there was a, a German U-boat that uh, had attacked her. There was no proof. Uh, the Germans disavowed that pro, uh, post-war. Uh, the circumstances in, in this case was Cyclops was traveling alone. Uh, she was out of radio contact um, during the period where they, they tried to, uh, um, I guess, make a routine call to, uh, to see where she was. She basically dropped off the face of the earth uh, following her uh, departure from uh, Barbados on March 4th, 1918. And uh, there were there were people that saw her off, but uh, after that, uh, there was no contact, no sighting, uh, nothing. Could, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Marvin Barish. His book is uh, USS Cyclops, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Could environmental factors, like uh, some sort of weird weather or geological events, could that have played a role in the disappearance of the vessel? It's quite possible. The The ship had a uh, history of severe rolling. On uh, one day in particular, August twenty second, 1916, during some heavy weather off the coast of Rhode Island, uh, she rolled 50 degrees to starboard and 46 degrees to port. That's not really a, a good situation. She basically was a, a flat bottom craft. And I guess if everything was loaded properly, she would tend not to roll. But here she was carrying a normal cargo, not uh, an unusual cargo. So she was designed to carry uh, this particular cargo on, on that on that day that uh, she had heavy rolling. Um, the other thing was, um, over time, she, uh, I believe, had some structural weaknesses. There were some, some fires that took place on the ship. Uh, back in 1915, there were two fires that lasted a week, a uh, couple months apart. One was in the bunker coal, the coal that the ship would use to propel herself. And then the cargo holds where the, uh, the coal was kept to transfer to other vessels. So perhaps some of those weaknesses, there was also the possibility that a, a rogue wave could have attacked her. Um, on her final cruise back from Brazil, one of her engines was inoperative. The starboard engine uh, had a uh, piston problem that the Navy decided would not be repaired down in Brazil, that new parts would be manufactured in Philadelphia and shipped to Baltimore to affect, I'm sorry, uh, I believe it was uh, Norfolk to repair the ship. But one of the, the odd things that came out of the notes that I found was that they believed that there was perhaps a uh, design flaw in that piston. 
and that they were going to create new parts. So uh, while they were blaming the maintenance crew, uh, the the engineer and so forth on the ship, for letting some knocking sounds persist, and then the um, crew shut down the engine um, before they uh, opened up the cylinder, uh, these guys were kind of blamed for something that might not have actually been their fault as far as any maintenance issues or, or things that they might have uh, neglected to do. Um, so there's a lot of different things on her final cruise that were unusual. And uh, uh, as far as being able to head off uh, any particular bad weather, or in the case of a rogue wave, they probably wouldn't even know what's going to happen. I suspect she probably went down at night. Uh, there was nothing found on the surface uh, anywhere, and she probably slipped quietly beneath the waves. And uh, as, as a result, I believe, of uh, a rogue wave, Mm-hmm. I think she probably made it to the uh, Puerto Rico Trench area, which is the uh, the deepest spot in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, at, I guess at her deepest depth, she's about five miles. One of the things that we see regularly is that there are ships or shipwrecks going all the way back to the Spanish Armada that are discovered by different um, you know different explorers. We saw the wreckage of the Titanic discovered, uh, I guess, about 70-something years after after it went down. What advancements in technology, if any, or search methods have been employed in recent years in order to locate the wreckage of the USS Cyclops? There's a, a lot of new technology that uh, we, we have the benefit of that uh, just needs to be deployed there are different uh, probes that can be just dropped down to the uh, the depths uh, that can transmit uh, photos and uh, 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 detect um, the presence of, um, I guess, different uh, types of metals or materials foreign to the seabed. Uh, we have uh, side-scan sonar, which I'm sure can do a pretty good job. There's a lot of remote sensing that uh, wasn't available many years ago. And uh, there there were some searches for the ship, primarily um, closer to shore off the the coast of Virginia back in the 70s. Uh, That uh, gentleman uh, thought he had found the ship. Turns out it was a much newer vessel. Uh, As far as... um, any real looks, I think it's, if my theory holds, the the depth is probably the biggest factor as far as keeping the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the secret of the uh, demise of the ship uh, intact. Uh, Titanic, if I'm correct, was about a mile and a half deep. So if Cyclops is about five miles, a little bit different type of uh, strategy would need to be employed. Let me ask you this, Marvin. Uh, obviously, you have a personal family connection to this, but for the public at large that's listening to this, so often when I do segments that involve 
history, uh, historical mysteries, whether it's the Lincoln assassination or what became of uh, President Zachary Taylor or anything, the, the mystery of Roanoke Island. So often, uh, basically, the response that I get from some cynical listeners is, who cares? They're gone. It's over. Let's focus on things in the present day that are with us now. In your opinion, Marvin, why does the disappearance of the USS Cyclops in 1918 still matter? Why should anybody care about a ship that disappeared over 100 years ago? Well, I believe it's the same reason why people care that anybody uh, is killed on the battlefield today or at, at sea. Uh, in the case of Cyclops, I've, I've met a number of different families who are still concerned, would like to bring this matter to rest and bring peace and, uh, and such to all involved. Uh, it may be that uh, one day somebody in their family you know, heaven forbid, would uh, meet their demise. I think they want the same consideration as far as understanding mm-hmm. what happened and uh, perhaps prevent a similar instance from occurring. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. I, I My understanding is that the Cyclops actually disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, there's been a lot written over the years about what goes on in the Bermuda Triangle. Why do you think so many things tend to go missing in the Bermuda Triangle? I believe it's uh, an area that's uh, geologically a little bit different. Uh, there's a lot of, it's, from what I've observed on, on various charts and uh, have, have read as best as I can on the subject, uh, it's kind of like a mixing bowl of various currents, different temperatures. Uh, there are theories as far as um, uh, gases that might surface that might create buoyancy issues. Um, perhaps some magnetic anomalies in the region. But I, I just, uh, I've, I've, I've been down there. I mean, I've, I've swam in waters off Puerto Rico, and, and I came out okay. Uh, so... I don't think it hits everything that touches the triangle. Um, there was a, a kind of a, an, an odd thing that happened when the uh, the ship was launched that would would almost uh, be a forbearance. Hmm. Um, when the, they tried to launch the ship on May seventh, nineteen ten, at Philadelphia at the shipyard on the Delaware River, there was a delay as a collier. Um, got stuck on the ways, and she had to be jacked up and persuaded into the water. So that might have been considered uh, kind of a bad omen. Gotcha, gotcha. And so uh, I, I don't believe in the hocus-pocus. I, I don't subscribe to it. I just couldn't ignore, you know, when I came across a piece like sure. that. Uh, but um, I just think there are a lot of things about the Earth that we still just don't understand. I, I think that's probably the uh, the truest thing I've heard anybody say in a while. Marvin, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate that. Hopefully we'll chat again in the future. Best of luck with your efforts. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, talking about the subject. Sure thing. Uh, Marvin Barish. 
great-nephew of one of the sailors on the USS Cyclops and the author of USS Cyclops. Uh, You can get them wherever books are available. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to do so, 800-848-9222, This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. This is uh, a birthday bumper music selection from uh, Vincent Gentili, who is celebrating his birthday today. Uh, So, over the weekend, I got to see another film that that I had been wanting to see for a while. And it had to do with a number of subjects that I was interested in. It's called Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. And it's available on Netflix. It's available on streaming. It's about six years old, so I'm just getting around to it now. And I was interested in seeing it because, one, I'm a fan of the media. Not a fan of the media. I'm interested in the media. I'm interested in learning about the media. I'm a student of the media, the economics of it, what goes on. I'm a student of the legal system, both civil and criminal. And I'm a student of pro wrestling. And one of the things that's kind of frustrated me is that there's a lot of great wrestling documentaries out there. There's wrestling documentaries about um, Ric Flair, Andre the Giant, Bruno Sammartino, The Ultimate Warrior, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, um, the many others. There is no great documentary about Hulk Hogan, which... When you think of what a what a larger-than-life figure that he's been, not just in pro wrestling but in the media, you would think there would be. But obviously I'm assuming that the reason that there hasn't been is because he does not want to participate in a tell-all documentary because there's stuff he doesn't want to tell. But whatever. So I said, let me watch this Nobody Speak. Basically what I started watching it as was about the um, – The wrestler Hulk Hogan, who had a sex tape published by Gawker, and he sued Gawker and had the website basically shut down. 
And the legal fees for this Hulk Hogan lawsuit weren't paid for by Hulk Hogan. They were paid for by the billionaire Peter Thiel. So um, I thought it was really interesting about two-thirds of it to three-quarters because it really raises so many interesting questions that if we allow billionaires to basically sue every media outlet that they don't like out of existence, is that going to be the end of a free press? However, it went from very quickly telling an interesting story about the Hulk Hogan sex tape Gawker lawsuit to just being a an anti-Sheldon Adelson, anti-Donald Trump, anti-everything right-wing, uh, I hate to put it this way because there are aspects of it that are very well made, Propaganda piece. So I, I kind of wished that the documentary would have focused just on the Hulk Hogan Gawker case because that's how it was billed, honestly. And I think maybe because in the aftermath of Trump getting elected, things were going in uh, another direction media wise. Maybe they wanted to capitalize on some of the anti Trump sentiment that was out there. I think it would have been better off just focusing on the Gawker case and what that meant for the future of media, because that would have been enough. But it kind of does this sudden left turn about two-thirds of the way through the documentary. I do think it has some value. So if you're interested in what happened with Hulk Hogan and Gawker, it might be worth checking out. Um, But I think you need to be warned that you're getting at least a third of a film that's just an anti-Trump propaganda piece. If you don't mind that, there could still be some value in it. It's called Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. It's available on uh, on Netflix. We'll take your calls in a minute. 800-848-9222. Until next hour, keep asking questions.